Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much for turning out, especially during your, your lunch hours, all of you. Um, I should introduce myself. I'm, I'm Bridget Hutter, and I hold a chair in risk regulation here at the LSE. And I'm also uh, ESR, director of the ESRC Center for Analysis of Risk and Regulation. Um, I'm a sociologist by training, um, and since then have worked very much from sociological and socio-legal perspectives. Uh, so my work's very much informed by those settings, um, but as I will explain to you during the course of the lecture, um, actually my work is very much working in interdisciplinary settings, and that, that's rather important for the lecture today. I'm going to talk about social science perspectives on risk regulation, and risk regulation, as you will all know, is presently in the limelight and at the centre of contemporary debates. We're all getting used, or become very used, to discussions about systemic financial collapse, failures of corporate governance, failures of regulation, and also of risk management. And the current problems are actually quite immense in scope and are also at the very heart of risk regulation debates. What I want to do in the coming hour is to sketch out for you some of the risk regulation research that we do in CAR and point to some of the insights that it might throw on contemporary events. Now, CAR brings together work on regulation and risk management, and it develops interdisciplinary studies at the intersection of management, sociology, accounting, organization theory, economics, political science, and law. And this interdisciplinarity, I think, has made CAR a leading national and international center on risk regulation, uh, one of the first in the world to focus specifically on this topic. First and foremost, being here at the LSE, we take a social science perspective on risk regulation issues. And, and that means, really, that we believe, as Ren outlines here, that all risk concepts of the social sciences have in common the principle that the causes and the consequences of risks are mediated through social processes. So that's the, the territory that we're working on. It's an approach that focuses on the ways in which the meanings and understandings of risk are influenced by broader social and cultural contexts within which they're situated. And we're particularly interested in how those risks are processed and how they're governed within organizations. So we focus on the social and the institutional character of risk management techniques, including quantitative methods and models. But we're not discussing here an approach to risk which constructs mathematical risk models but one which focuses much more on the social, economic, and political context within which those models are constructed, and we also look at how they're used within and by organizations. Now, if we were to look at the financial crisis and consider our focus, we would not be looking on the precise risk models used by financial markets in the past decades, but rather upon the period in which the crisis incubated. So we'd look at the climate within which the models were developed and gained currency, the assumptions that were made about risk, and how this influenced risk appetites at the level of the economy, regulation, financial institution, and in fact all of us as consumers. 
We might analyse the climate of optimism that pervaded economic thinking. It's a bit hard to remember it now, but it was there for decades. It affected monetary policy. It kept interest rates low. It encouraged consumers to borrow and especially to spend. It encouraged financial institutions to develop new innovative products which were unhampered by too much regulation. And as we now know, those products were not fully understood always by their boards or even their senior management. So we will focus on the interconnectedness of these and how they might lead to systemic global world event, which emphasizes so dramatically the very social foundations of economic life. And it's important to understand here that risk regulations embedded in the social context within which it takes place and that views change, what is possible changes. If we look again at the financial crisis, we can illustrate this with reference to governmental views on risk regulation of financial markets. And I'm going to give you some examples of, of quotations from ministerial speeches in 2005 and 2009. They're symptomatic of that much more general climate. If we look at 2005, we see that the mood is going to be one that's, that's not very pro-regulation. It's one which blames regulators for stifling innovation. Um, and it's one in which, arguably, it was difficult for regulators to do their job. So we have a, a quote here from Tony Blair, 2005, in which he criticizes the Financial Services Authority. He says it was established to provide clear guidelines and rules for financial services sector, to protect the consumer against the fraudulent, and it's seen as hugely inhibiting of efficient business by perfectly respectable companies that have never defrauded anyone. It captures in a, a small quotation, and you can look at the whole speech, it's very much a, 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 of this ilk, that actually the FSA should, should calm down, not regulate too much, um, that it's actually um, not helping the UK economy. This is reflected also in a speech given by his then next door neighbor, the Chancellor. And he gives a speech in the same year in which he talks about the old regulatory model. And he says that for more than 100 years, the implicit principle from health and safety to the administration of tax and financial services has been, irrespective of known risks or past results, 100% inspection, whether it be premises, procedures, or practices. I honestly don't know where he got that from. It's an impossibility. It is not possible to 100% inspect all of those. It's never happened, and actually it never could. But he carries on. The better, and in my opinion, the correct modern model of regulation, the word moderns here is quite important, it's, it's pejorative in a sense, uh, the risk-based approach is based on trust in the responsible company, echoing, of course, the, the speech by Tony Blair that I quoted just now, the engaged employee and the educated consumer, leading government to focus its attention where it should be. So he says, no inspection without justification, no form filling without justification, and no information requirements without justification. Not just a light touch, but a limited touch. So again, the focus is on blaming the regulators for regulating, and also this notion that, that um, 
the economy would be much better if, if, if we had very, very limited regulation. Now, perhaps not surprisingly in retrospect, in 2009, there's a dramatic change in the sorts of messages and climate within which regulation is being exercised. Gordon Brown, by now, of course, Prime Minister, in number 10, talks about the need for a tougher regulation of our financial system. That's in stark contrast to what he said in 2005. And he talks about an urgent need to reshape financial regulation in Britain and across the world to meet the new challenges of the 21st century. Um, very interesting, he was talking about the need to reshape in 2005. Um, I thought that was the 21st century, but he appears to have forgotten what he said. But he's changed his mind radically. The whole tone of of what, what regulation should look like and its role has changed. And by now, in 2009, we have Alistair Darling in number 11, and he has the same message. We deliver tougher regulation, more rigorous monitoring and managing of system-wide risks, so we can make sure they're able to deal with failures when they arise. Regulators will get powers to do their jobs more effectively to our searching questions of institutions. Now, I could have um, chosen, I should add, very carefully quotations from the opposition that would have been very, very similar to this. Uh, the, my point is that these, these are symptomatic of a much more general mood in these years about what regulation should look like and how risks should be managed. There's a general climate pervading politics, the economy, and beyond. Now, interdisciplinary and comparative research can help us understand these issues better. And risk regulation research in the LSE brings together work on regulation and risk management techniques. Now, interestingly, the very fact that we have a center that looks at these subjects may itself be seen as symptomatic and the product of a very modern world. The financial crises actually point to some key features of 21st century risks. In, for, in particular, their potential scale. Social theorists suggest that global risks are among the new risks which confront modern societies. And we've got other examples, of course, notably climate change and global warming. We've also encountered risks which don't have national and organizational boundaries. And uh, one of my colleagues in car, Jeanette Hoffman, talks about internet risks in this way. There's also the growth of large multinational organizations which may be implicated in the creation and also the management of risks. Indeed, looking at organizations is critical in understanding and managing risks in modern societies, hence they become a major focus of research. Authors like Ulrich Beck, who's the BJS Visiting Centennial Professor in the Sociology Department, he argues that modern societies are characterized by new risk environments which are associated with substantive changes in society. For example, the growth of science and technology. Advances in biotechnology are perhaps amongst the most controversial of contemporary scientific developments. We have arguments and debates, as you know, around genetically modified crops, around stem cell, nanotechnology, and synthetic biology. These developments are highly volatile in the way that they're received. They may be heralded as a success one day, but then be seen as hazardous shortly afterwards. 
And very often these manufactured risks are the unintended consequences of innovations which are initially seen as very, very positive and they're seen as progressive. But later they're found to have negative side effects which the public and the environment may be involuntarily exposed to risks that were actually originally never understood or conceived of. So governments intervene to manage and regulate these risks. And in so doing, they exemplify another feature of modern societies. For example, new ways of seeing the world. There are two dimensions to this. One is that there, it is argued that there is now an orientation to the future. And also that there's a belief that we can control and manage risks into the future. And we have this exemplified in a, in a number of social theories. We have Beck again arguing that we live in a world where we're increasingly occupied with debating, preventing, and managing risks. We have the German social theorist Luhmann, who distinguishes between risks and dangers. He says risk is associated with potential loss. It's something into the future, something that might happen. And he contrasts that with the actual losses that are involved with dangers. And Giddens, again associated with the LSE, of course, as a former director, sees a growing preoccupation with the future. And he argues that there's no longer a belief in fate, but an aspiration to control the future. Now, a lot of this is associated by Beck in particular to the growth of science. He believes that a growing belief in science, rationality, and calculability. And he says that these are the reasons that we've changed our views of the world. For other authors, there's been a growing rationalization, which has emphasized the importance of governance and process. And again, authors who, who take this line relate this to regulation and the attempt through regulation to manage risks associated with the new risk society. Risk regulation, therefore, in a lot of this literature is seen as being associated with risk management, not explicitly argued that way actually until about 2000. Um, and then definitely there's a literature taking off which, which, which examines that perspective. So we ought to have a look at what we might mean by risk management. I've taken a very, a very standard and very good uh, definition of risk management here from the Royal Society. Um, they talk about risk management being a process. That word's important. It's a process whereby decisions are made to accept a known or assessed risk and or the implementation of actions to reduce the consequences or probability of an occurrence. And they also talk importantly about this process involving compromise. A compromise um, which really in a sense looks at the risk but also looks at the increased cost, the scheduling requirements required for risk management, the effectiveness of redesign or retraining, and the effectiveness of installing warnings and safety devices and procedural changes. Now, I've, I've highlighted two words or two, 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 two ideas here on purpose, the notion of process and the notion of compromise, because I think they're actually rather important in underlining and bringing home that these decisions are not simple. They're far from simple, and they involve a whole host of decisions. Decisions have got to be made about what actually even constitutes a risk. 
and also about how much uncertainty is acceptable and what levels of risk are tolerable. If you look at the word regulation, it tells you a lot. It tells you that the aim is to regulate, it's to manage, it's not to eliminate and get rid of something, it's to manage it. It's about control and restriction, but it's also about adaptation and flexibility. And essentially, it's about balancing risk against other factors. And risk regulation is a balancing act. It involves the weighing up of evidence. And I'd take us back here to some, some key authors, actually, early on in risk debates in social science, Douglas and Vodatsky. And they write, substantial disagreement remains over what is risky, how risky it is, and what to do about it. Interestingly, the second part of that quotation actually doesn't give us any cause for optimism. It actually starts to explain that these things are never going to be simple and there will always be disagreement. So actually, the, the more you're able to measure, the more you're able to research, the more you actually can uncover more areas of potential risk, more areas of ignorance. It's a theme in a lot of social science writing, but it... The key point here is that actually deciding what is a risk is not actually simple. And actually it's, co it's complicated by the fact that there are conflicts in evidence and there are competing vested interests in what might be involved. And I've put up here a quotation by the political science Breyer, which I think sort of crystallizes some of the issues rather well. He talks in the 1990s about a number of chemicals that are seen to threaten us, and he points out they threaten air, water, lives, and he names a number of chemicals there, most of which most of you will be familiar with. But then he points to the, the sort of politics around this. He said, we hear charges and countercharges, uh, callous industry, greedy lawyers, lives unnecessarily lost, billions of dollars wasted in a pointless search for perfect safety. And he raises the, the dilemma here, how do governments deal with such problems? Which substances should we regulate? In what order? To what extent? Who should decide and how? Pointing very much to a very important point, of course, which is that there are not infinite resources to deal with these things. So decisions have to be made. And deciding what to do actually presents a number of tensions. I should say at this point that what governments often do is create a regulatory agency at a distance to take these decisions for them so they can be blamed if it goes wrong and uh, perhaps often they're ignored if things are done right. But that is a, is a, is a very typical governmental response. The way in which many organizations deal with these problems, because these are problems that have to be dealt with by government, but also by all organizations, whether they be in the public or the private sector. So there's a whole range of different decision-making levels going on here. They don't just happen at societal level, they happen transnationally, and right down to organizations obviously like the LSE, um, and many other organizations throughout the country and the world have to make these sorts of decisions. And one way in which increasingly organizations have done that is to respond to those decisions by adopting risk management techniques to guide their decision making. Now, risk management approaches have actually become very, very popular in government. They've been advocated by government as a way of organizing their public service activities, including regulation. 
The concepts of risk and governance have become inextricably intertwined over past decades in ways hitherto unseen. Public and private spaces have certainly seen the growth of formal risk tools and perspectives in the effort to avoid the repetition of previous risk events and to help identify and manage new risks. Now, these efforts are characterised by a number of things which are written about in a range of social science literatures. There's been a reliance on calculation and a trust in numbers. Much better to have something with a hard quantitative number attached to it than soft qualitative data. So that, that, but that has a number of dangers in it which have been written about. We've seen the ascendancy of probabilistic views of the world. And we've seen moral imperatives to protect the public from risk events whenever possible. And political imperatives to avoid blame. These methods and approaches don't actually resolve some of the fundamental tensions about how to respond. And again, I'll take us back to Vildavsky. He argued that we need to balance anticipation and in resilience, anticipation being the anticipation of risk, the forward-looking. He says anticipation can lead to a great deal of unnecessarily wasted effort and wasted resources because of the high volume of hypothesized risks, many of which may be exaggerated and many of which may be false. These anticipatory strategies, he argues, may actually reduce the ability of organizations and societies to cope with the unexpected. The anticipation and management of risk may actually generate a momentum of its own, and a momentum which has its own risks and its own unanticipated consequences. The state has traditionally been the site of regulation, and many people, when you use the word regulation, will think you're referring to state regulation. And the ways it's acted have been fairly uh, conventional, but not, not easy, I'm not implying that. They've acted through law, through rules, through enforcement agencies, and through policies designed to influence economic life. So they've used, for example, taxation, broad economic policy, disclosure requirements, the sort of disclosure requirements which will tell you the uh, contents of the food that you go and buy, um, they've also used public ownership um, and the word nationalization, which is one that I didn't think a few years ago I'd be using again and I should delete. But now, of course, we have partly nationalized banks. So it's reappeared as a, as a form of, um, of regulation. More recently, risk regulations come to be seen as broader than that, though. It's come to be seen as including activities which might take place beyond the state. So it embraces conceptualizations of broadening the participatory base for regulation and risk management practice. And there's a few examples up here of the sites of that regulation beyond the state. There may be economic sector regulators, so it may be that industry and trade associations play a very important role, an important regulatory role in terms of laying out standards and maybe even having enforcement um, of those standards amongst its members. Companies themselves have increasingly been asked to regulate themselves. 
although that has come into increasing question in the last 12 months. Consultancy businesses can play an important regulatory role. They can actually uh, be the carriers of information, um, the carriers of ways to comply with regulation and manage risk better. And insurance companies have been written about quite a lot in the literature as being actually maybe even alternative to state regulation. So they, they will um, have a lot of information about risk and they theoretically at least, but I'll come back to this, set premiums according to behavior. So if you appear not to be complying, your premium goes up, and if you are compliant, your premium goes down. So it could be seen as one important way of managing risk. And in the civil sphere, we have non-governmental organizations, charities, trusts, and advocacy groups, all of which in some form or another might play a regulatory role. Now, research into the influence of these different areas on risk management is quite interesting because it doesn't always come up with the results you expect. It makes social science research particularly interesting for some of us. And I'm going to finish the talk because I have to give you obviously a lot of time to ask questions as well. I'm going to finish the talk with an example of a piece of research that I undertook on business risk management um, and it will give you a flavor of some of the research that we do. This research focused on food safety and food hygiene risks in the food, retail and catering sectors in, in Great Britain. And uh, hopefully, I'm hoping this is a, a post-lunch um, talk for many of you because it's usually not a good subject around mealtimes. The aim of the project was to have a look and see how businesses understand and manage risk and to gain an understanding of um, the ways in which their risk management practices are influenced by a number of different factors inside and also outside of their companies. Um, we had a look at uh, a number of different food businesses selected on a sample basis of large multinational companies through to major chains, uh, through to medium-sized and small-sized businesses. Um, and had quite a large sample in the end. I'm going to refer to one small part of the research in which managers and owners of food businesses were asked about the external influences on their risk management practices. And this included a, a very general question about the extent to which their consideration of food safety and food hygiene risks was influenced by sources external to their business. And this table shows you the aggregate responses that we had. We gave them a number of different influences um, and for those of you who, who aren't familiar with the area and there's no reason that you should be particularly, environmental health officers who come up as the most influential are actually state regulators, they're local authority regulators um, and they enforce in, in each local authority food safety and food hygiene legislation. Uh, amongst an, a range of other forms of legislation, I should say, they're quite generalist inspectors. The Food Standards Agency is another state agency uh, dealing primarily with um, policy matters and setting standards, um, but it also has the meat hygiene service attached to it, so it has a direct inspectorate role in that area. Trading standards officers, we put in there, they're more to do actually with quality of food, 
rather than its safety and hygiene, but we assume there might be some misunderstanding and confusion about the difference, which is why we put them in there to see if, if people answered a safety or hygiene question with respect to them. And then we have a range of non-state actors. We have consumers, um, media, insurance, lawyers, and pressure groups. Now, probably there are a number of surprises here. For some people, the fact that the state regulator was so important would be a surprise. I don't think it's an enormous surprise. It is interesting, though, that environmental health officers are local, food standards agency is central, and the local inspector is, 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 is seen as the most influential. That you would expect. The biggest surprise for many people is that consumers come next. They're, they're really equal in influence to environmental health officers. And actually, that's not something that we anticipated from the existing literature. Um, it's perhaps quite a positive finding, because perhaps it shows the thought that we all collectively have some power in terms of, of what we can do. But it, it was a bit of a surprise to us, and I'm going to come to a few other of the surprises there. We did try to dig down to see um, why these sorts of responses might come through. And we asked inspectors, you know, what they thought consumer concerns were. This was in another part of the questionnaire. And it was part of triangulating the data to see what people thought. Now, what this, this particular table tells us is we gave um, managers a, a list of different um, characteristics, and we said that when consumers decide where to buy their food or where, which restaurants to eat in, what did they think was the most important criteria for doing so? And very, very interestingly, and it explains the previous table in part, they put food safety and food hygiene there. In fact, they put it above price. They put it above labeling, BSE, food additives, GM. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting result, and it's iterated in some of the um, qualitative data, um, where, for example, we're told customers come here for the cleanliness, the atmosphere, and the freshness of the products. I think that's why we're doing well. Customers know that our chain of restaurants are clean and well presented, and they'll probably see staff washing their hands. So there's a very strong belief amongst these managers that actually we all differentiate according to food safety and food hygiene, where we where we eat and buy food. Uh, interestingly, this isn't borne out by the consumer data at all. Consumer data and research shows that actually uh, most people in the UK assume that food safety and food hygiene in most places is fine, and they actually would put price above food safety and food hygiene. But the interesting thing for us is that is not what is driving the managers in these establishments. They're driven by their understanding, which is that consumers make this an important, um, um, important discriminating factor. We also had a look at the media. Now, they're often considered to be one of the most influential opinion formers, but generally their role is deliberated in the academic literature as a theoretical possibility, and the empirical data which do exist are contradictory. Now, something we did find doing this research, and it's quite common, is that um, a lot of things that were sort of appear to be commonly held um, hard facts actually are, are much more discussed in theory than in actual empirical data is lacking. Um, and that's what we found in a number of these areas. Good news for anyone wanting to do a PhD thesis, because there are many PhD theses 
that are there to be done on some of these topics. Uh, media is one area. Uh, this research, as you can see, um, the, the media doesn't come through as um, being widely recognized as having a strong role. Now, remember, the question being asked here is that when you're going around your sort of daily work and you're deciding, you know, how, how much effort to put into risk management, um, this is the thrust of the question. What are the influences? What's, what, what's, what's there worrying you? And they're not worried that there's going to be a film crew or investigative journalists there um, about to write a story on them. Though They are very dismissive of the press. Um, they say when bad practices are shown on TV, I think people think that all catering businesses are run the same, not right. And there was a whole thrust of anger towards the media for sort of tainting the whole industry. But it wasn't, as I've said, something they worried about on a daily basis. The other group we looked at were insurance companies, partly, again, because some of the literature suggests that insurance companies really do play a very major role in this area. Um, but again, when we had a look, there was a lot of theoretical discussion about the role of insurance agencies, but there was very inconclusive empirical evidence about how important they actually can be. And very few of the people that we interviewed and surveyed in our research regarded insurance companies as having a significant influence over their management of food safety and hygiene risks. In fact, some of them were, were quite disdainful of the insurance sector, a very, very senior director of a major food chain, said insurance is the enemy of the good, as it's designed to average out loss, resulting in the good not being rewarded and the bad not being punished. And, of course, what he's referring to here is the fact that insurance, of course, pulls risk. And the theory is that, you know, if company A um, is found to have caused a number of food poisonings, is found to have... Um, a bad track record in terms of its food safety, food hygiene, one might expect that its premium would go up um, relative to the others. And the, the, the finding here was, and the assertion here was, that that doesn't happen. It's not that nuanced. Um, and when I've given lectures, um, and I have given some in academic departments which are um, insurance-based, they have confirmed that's the case. So there's, there's an interesting lesson perhaps to be, to be learned there. Um, which, which is, is particularly good. Um, we also had a look at lawyers. Um, we're doing our research in the context of, um, you know, a, a climate. This is around 2005 again, um, when there's a lot of talk about compensation culture, a lot of talk about litigation stopping things happening and inhibiting risk. So lawyers were put into our research for that reason. Now, the relevance of lawyers, as you can see here, wasn't very well understood by our survey respondents. And lawyers were actually, down here, regarded as having the least influence of all the external actors that we asked about in our survey. Um, there's very little research, actually, again, about the role of lawyers in business decisions. How much do businesses sit and actually worry about these things when actually getting on with their business. And there's no compelling evidence that liability laws influence food businesses. And that is interesting, I think, in light of the uh, prominent myth of compensation culture. And I think there is a growing literature that this is indeed a myth. The other area of surprise for us is the other 
low influence here of pressure groups and NGOs. We, we thought that might well play a role and that, that, that actually there may be a, a deal of worry about this. Um, this wasn't borne out by our data, as you can see. One director we interviewed actually suggested that his employees wouldn't know what on earth we were talking about when we talked about pressure groups and non-governmental organizations. And actually, he was proven right. 40% of those we interviewed didn't know what on earth we were talking about. Um, and that, that's interesting because it, it maybe teaches us as researchers that we sit in places like this and we make all sorts of assumptions about what other people know and actually they don't. So while you know, lots of people here may even be members of NGOs and they most probably know what they are, what we found was that actually they, they weren't terribly well understood, which, which surprised us. Now, this sort of study is interesting in its own right, but I think what, what's even more interesting, and this is me probably having a fantasy research agenda, would be to do comparative research which, understand, which helps you understand the dynamics in play here. So if we were to repeat a study like this or others of the type that we do in different domains, say we were to do it about the environment, health and safety, finance, there's a whole range of environments that one could look at. Would we find similar sorts of findings? Might we find in some sectors that actually NGOs and lawyers are actually going to appear at the top and the state agencies might appear at the, at the bottom of, of graph like this? So actually doing cross-cultural and cross-domain research would be, would be very, very interesting. And also to look at how these sorts of risk management intersect actually in a business with others because one thing that becomes very apparent when you study businesses is that if you're a food business, you have to worry about this. Of course you do. Um, but actually you have to worry about health and safety laws. You have to worry about tax laws. You have to worry about um, environment laws even. Uh, there's a whole range of different regulations and how well they're understood um, is, is, is something that hasn't, you know, there's some research on it, but there could be a lot more. We could get a far better understanding of, of risk management and how it actually pans out. Now, this sort of research is the sort of research going on in CAR. And for those of you who, who don't know it, we, we work on a number of different areas. Organizational encounters with risk is the focus I've already highlighted on looking at organizations as actually very important sites in modern society of risk regulation research and of actually creating, sometimes solving risk. Um, we do a, a range of different domains. There's, there's health mentioned here. I've just mentioned food. But we try and cross-cut those boundaries, try and do a comparative research that looks across a number of different boundaries. Um, and you'll see, for some reason, there used to be a bit of a, a railway obsession in car, to which I contributed, I must admit. Uh, but there are more general things to do with innovation and general decisions about the government of risk. And we have a magazine for those who are interested, which is also online, which will give you some idea of the sorts of research that's up to date and what we're doing now. And I've got examples here. Um, we have one that's on the environment, so different domain again. We have one on global risk, which I mentioned at the beginning and our most recent one on So we've tried to put a lot of the research that we're doing, um, which is very up-to-date, onto the web, so you can go and have a look at it and see what we're up to. And the website should have most things on it. 
And of course, this research does feed into teaching programs, and I know that, that some people here are actually members of the groups that, that attend those. So thank you very much for your time, and I've left some time for questions if anybody's got any. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. That was very interesting. I just noticed at the uh, beginning of your talk, uh, and it probably displays my ignorance rather than anything else, but I was interested that you, you differentiated between climate change and global warming as one of the sort of risk areas. Is that, you know, how do you tend to analyse those two differently? I don't, I'm probably as ignorant as you, which is why I put them up separately. I mean, they are discussed differently um, in, in some settings, and I think one of the difficulties in, in looking at risk is, or looking at anything, actually, is that you often have interchangeable terms, but the, the point was that some people will understand one of those better than the other. And um, at the moment, well, they've both at various times been used as being different terms with subject about contestation about about what's going on so I, th I think they are discussed about in, in different they are discussed differently in the literature in terms of using them as, as general terms to refer to probably the same range of, of, of happenings but nothing very technical there sorry thank you <laughs> Question behind. Um, thanks for a very interesting talk. I just want to ask, you mentioned um, that it would be interesting to look at the role of lawyers yeah. um, in relation to um, liability laws and influencing the, um, the food decisions and compensation culture. Um, so if you, it kind of seemed that you thought that um, in your study lawyers didn't play a big role. So I was just wondering where you think this um, compensation culture comes from if it's not feeding from the lawyers to the media and if the employers don't think that the media has such a, a, a big role to play. I was just wondering where you think it comes from and I'm more interested in kind of health and safety um, laws so it, it's really interesting for me that you brought that up. Right. Um, I think it's very hard to pinpoint one place that anything comes from. I mean one of the interesting things in this area is that actually if we were to go back we, and we would go back to the 70s, we wouldn't see the word risk being used either. So, so things appear to, to have their moment in time when they come in. I think one broad area where I think compensation culture, one area I would point to might well be government actually. Um, I think uh, I attended a very interesting talk um, a while ago in which a, a senior business figure said that he actually thought that um, politicians had become the new blamers in society, that they'd um, come to be the ones that pointed the finger um, and blamed others. And in a sense, I think that compensation culture has a flavour of that. Um, work that's been done in, even in the United States and also in the UK has found that, that actually the incidence of, um, you know, civil actions is, is, is not anywhere near the levels that is, is suggested by the term compensation culture. Indeed, um, government's better regulation unit, which wasn't known actually for, 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 for making remarks like this, they did a study on it and said that actually it was a myth as well. Um, one of my colleagues, Sally Lloyd-Bostock, has, has, um, has, has, has written an article in which she suggested that, that maybe this is a way of, of, of governments, particularly in this um, anti-regulation era, you know, in, in, in 
2005-2006, before that, it was one way of politicians blaming the public for regulating. And I think there, there's an argument to be, to be held there, but it's, I think politicians have, have, have something to answer here. Um, and, and maybe some, there's something deeper, because it's about blaming. It's about blaming somebody else for, for something that's happening. But it's, I looked through the, on the food subject, I looked through the food literature cross-nationally, and, and the food liability laws didn't come through as particularly important in the United States either. So um, there was a question here. Um, I was wondering, to what extent do you think risk regulation um, actually affects economic growth? And to what extent can risk regulation actually um, prevent financial crisis from happening? Uh, the, the, the sort of normative arguments, political arguments around risk regulation always link it to the notion of innovation and say that it stops innovation and is bad for the economy. That's the thrust of those 2005 quotations. Um, maybe we've got ample demonstration now that innovation that maybe it does need to, to be looked at and, and considered in, in more depth. Risk regulation and its general role. I think that risk regulation, one thing we forget, is embedded, and this is the point I was making earlier, it's embedded within the, the, the politics and the economic that there are very strict parameters as to what it can do. Uh, it's not the be-all and end-all answer to anything. It can't be. And in some senses, um, it's per perhaps being too rude to say it's, it's at the margins of society, but it's not, it's not a central, it's not going to provide the magic bullet. It can contribute towards that. And I'll, I'll pull an analogy out. When I was doing my sociology degree in of discussion about the role of education in eradicating inequality. And I would draw the same sort of analogies. Is education can, of course, help um, some people become more mobile, but it's never say the same about regulation. Um, I think that to see it as um, it could be inhibiting of the economy, but actually it could be um, it could be enabling and facilitating. I remember many years ago, a very senior academic um, here asked me what I did, and when I said that I looked at regulation, he started walking away. And I said, that's also a risk. And he turned around and said, really, tell me more. And there's, there's, there's those normative things tied to these terms, which I think we have to have Short question, but a little bit of a supplementary. Do you think regulation actually works, um, context being just near I've had dealings with? Health and safety, we've probably got between about 350, 400 regulations, probably thousands of relevant guidance documents below that. Uh, we currently average about 250, 300 fatalities, which when you correct it for the change of industry profile, there hasn't been a drastic reduction in the last 30 years. 4,000 deaths against uh, asbestos. 24,000 cancers associated with occupational exposure. So in that context, do you think regulation actually works? I think it helps. 
I think it's helped bring down the fatality rate over the last century dramatically, and I think it's helped improve our environmental quality dramatically. But it hasn't done that on its own. I would link that to the previous question. So that's one part of an answer. Another part of an answer is, you know, we have thousands of, of regulations, and that's a problem. I agree with you, that's a problem. I think having something principles-based is much better. Having far fewer regulations, which are not more broadly cast, but what you find, and if you're working in the area, and I guess you are, you know this, that actually business doesn't like, doesn't like principles. It wants to know what it's got to do, and then when it's drilled down and that's looked into, that can become a problem. Um, regulation is highly problematic, as is risk management, and I'm putting them together on purpose, because we aren't talking a one-off solution. We aren't talking a one-off scenario. Um, this room could comply with health and safety regulations now, and tomorrow it might not. So things are changing, and part of the problem is that things are ever-changing. The other problem is that regulation is, as I've said in, in the lecture, it's not just about the state it's about all these other bodies. So actually, there's a, there's a lovely description I think Peter Grabowski from America uses, uh, from Australia, sorry, uses, which is he talks about a regulatory web. And I think we have a regulatory web which makes the state regulation feel like it's more oppressive because they're the easier one to point the finger at. But actually, there's a whole host of other, other bodies. Um, if you look at the... Uh, in the banking sector, one of the things that's often pointed to as being a problem with the FSA is that they make sure that every time you know, any of us goes to a bank and wants to open a bank account for our baby or whatever, we have to prove that that baby is who we say it is and produce passports and birth certificates. Now, that actually, the FSA has never asked for that. It was the interpretation of the Trade Association of Bankers that said this is what this probably means. So actually it was, a, it was a layer of precaution put on by a trade industry. So I think the whole thing needs unpacking again and it's much more complicated. Um, there's a whole set of questions. Perhaps we should move to the side of the room for the moment. And there's a gentleman here and then. Hey, thanks. Um, I, I want, want to come back you know, to this uh, survey you run, you know, you know yeah. the one about um, it, it was, um, the results were actually very interesting for me as well, but I don't know whether I missed something. I mean, how do you ensure truthful revelation? I mean, if you ask, you know, somebody in a store, is it the consumer more important for you or, uh, I don't know, uh, hygiene officer, <laughs> some external organization or the media, is it, isn't it? kind of natural, you know, that for marketing purposes, you know, this person is going to answer that the consumer is more important, you know, not the media. Um, so is there, you know, some reason to believe actually to this? Uh, they weren't asked a question that crude, I can assure you. Hmm. We don't ask questions that crude. <laughs> so the question would have been much more nuanced than that. And as I, I've pointed out through the, the questionnaires, I mean, there were three sets of interviews. I haven't got time to go into it because I'm getting signals that I've got to stop because the next lectures are going to happen. But the... Um, the, the, there were three, three different um, phases of this research, and we, we asked different questions across the three phases to double-check data, and within each phase asked data that double-checked. Um, the, the consumers came up in the qualitative discussions very early on, which were quite spontaneous and open-ended, and then they came up in the quantitative surveys when we included them in a list when previously we wouldn't have. And then when we came back, they came up. But we didn't say, oh, are you worried about consumers? And we're not talking about the marketing side either. We're talking about 
you know, the, 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 the people managing uh, a store, not, not, not the marketing department of a big, big supermarket. Um, so it's true insofar as it, it, it you know, it, there's a pattern there. The other thing is that you know we're talking hundreds of responses, and this is a pattern that comes through. But the question wasn't a, a biased one in that sense. I do have to stop here because I, I, I know the next lecture is going to happen. Thank you very much for coming and, and your attention. Mm -hmm.